Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Kablooey Clark. <laughs> There's Charles W. Bam Bam Bryant and Jerry Radioactive Roland. Oh, boy. And this is Stuff You Should Know. You still got it. After all these <laughs> years. You still got it. Yep. Hey, I think uh, before we get going, we should talk very briefly about our audiobook. Oh, yeah. Because this week in real time, we are uh, each recording our respective parts for the audiobook. And first of all, we just want to tell everyone there's going to be an audiobook version. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler. <laughs> of uh, Stuff You Should Know, colon, and uh, Mostly Incomplete Guide to Very Interesting Things. Man, still. <laughs> An incomplete compendium of mostly interesting things. Uh, yeah, so we're we're trying to push that out as a, uh, you know, get both as, is what I say. But if you're into audiobooks, we're doing one. But also, I just want to make sure people know what they're getting. And I put this on the Stuff You Should Know Army page. They're not getting 27 new podcast episodes. No. And they should know that because our podcast is unscripted conversation. Mm -hmm. An audiobook is us reading an audiobook. And rather than just weirdly trading lines, reading from a script, which would, I think that would dash a lot of people's image of <laughs> of what we do. Yeah. Uh, we are each reading chapters. And I think they're going to mix in some stuff here and there. But um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be great and fun. But. It's not podcast episodes. We don't get to just fart around and make jokes like we got to read our book. No, we have. Oh man, we will be kept in line <laughs> if we tried to fart around and make jokes. It would not be good. There's this whole no. time is money ethos and sure. yelling, sometimes crying. It's a real stressful situation. Everybody, how did you? How'd that go for you yesterday? Did you enjoy yourself? I just told you there was a lot of yelling yeah. and crying. It was very stressful. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was. It reminded me a lot of recording um, The End of the World because, yeah, exactly. you know, I wrote those and then I read them. Right. So it was very similar to that except um, a lot less heavy. <laughs> yeah, know? I was slightly nervous at first for some reason after talking for 12 years, probably just because you weren't there. But then it was like, oh. uh, you know, it was it was fine. Did Fleet, the director, calm you, make you feel better? Yeah, I mean, you know, I got I got in my groove. I felt pretty pretty comfy by the end of it. Yeah. So, I mean, it has it is fun. It's definitely a lot of extra work this week, but it's kind of cool, you know. At the end, we're going to have a, a bona fide audio book. That's right, and a bona fide book that you can pre-order now. And mm -hmm. uh, we're also working on getting that pre-order gift available to uh, the UK and Australia and other parts of the world because yeah. we have different publishers there. It's not like we were trying to exclude everyone. No, no, no. But we are moving heaven and earth to get it done. And, right. and yeah, if you're in the US and Canada and you pre-order, if you haven't gotten your poster yet, worry not. You're going to get your pre-order gift eventually. That's right. Wow. So um, for the 15, 17 people who stuck around, prepare to learn about fallout shelters because that's Ultimately, what we're here to talk about today. That's right. Actually, before that, I have to say one more thing. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I posted that squirrel attack video on my Instagram, you know, that we talked about on the episode. Yeah. Because people kept asking. And so I, I put it up. Um, I'm at Chuck the Podcaster. If you want to see mm -hmm. a squirrel go berserk and f literally fly through the air and hit me in the leg, 
then you can you can see that, and it's been viewed yeah. like fifteen thousand times now. One of these days, I I hope you'll fess up to what you did to provoke that squirrel. <laughs> I didn't. I mean, the whole thing's there. You see me exit my house, so there, yeah. But I mean, no, we uh, didn't know like what happened like a half before hour that. before. <laughs> right. You know that had been ongoing for the last week. Yeah, or so. that's true. That's true. Yeah. No backstory. So now I yes. think we're going to talk about fallout shelters because Chuck, um, your house has a basement, but it's exposed on one side to the outdoors. It's not an in-ground basement as far as I know. And hopefully I'm not divulging too much information about your house so so weird fans will be able to find it and show up. Well, actually, it, you know, one side of it is exposed to the world, but the other side is, you know, 10 feet of earth and red clay. Like, it could have been a great fallout shelter had it not been for that one side. Sure. But there are things you could do. Uh, or could have done. I think we should use past tense here because the need for a fallout shelter as far as a nuclear war goes is vanishingly remote these days. Yeah. I like to think. I don't it, think we yeah. should get in any fear-mongering here. No, I agree. Um, but there are a few things you could have done or could do to build a fallout shelter with that 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 good side, I guess. And we're going to talk about that today. But mainly what we're talking about with fallout shelters is almost kind of like this examination of the world psyche during the Cold War to where as the the nuclear arsenals of the Soviet Union and, and the United States started to build up in step with one another and we were suddenly in a nuclear arms race where just 10 years before there were no such thing as nuclear weapons, people started to realize like, oh man, if one of these goes off near me, I'm in big trouble. And they started looking around to the government to say, hey, um, what should I do? And at first the government was like, mm, you know, mm-hmm. figure it out yourself. And then eventually yeah. the government kind of got a little more involved. And before you know it, we had a, a national fallout shelter program as feeble and terrible as it was. At least we had one. Yeah, what's really funny is when you read up on this stuff, and you learn that President Kennedy, uh, John F. Kennedy, that is, asked Congress for $100 million to build public fallout shelters. Right. That is such an adorable number now. It is. That, that would build like 10 fallout shelters these days. Yeah. That's maybe. like That's maybe. That's like the amount of money that would take to get like a motorcade to the Capitol right. <laughs> from the White House, basically, you know? Yeah, but it was a real threat back then. Um, and I can't remember what episode. It may have been— uh, nuclear radiation. Uh, we did one on the disaster in Japan. Yeah, we've, we've done sure. a couple on this, but I know that I told the story of my father, like having us sort of do twenty percent of a fallout shelter when I was <laughs> ten or twelve years old after the movie The Day After uh-huh. aired on television. And yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was my brother and I taking out, digging out buckets of dirt and carrying them out in the woods and dumping them. <laughs> For probably three or four weekends, and then we stopped. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you guys were 20% covered if something happened. Yeah, I mean, we could have, yeah, it, it was pretty gross. So was it akin to this um, this this uh, shelter that we were going to go over at the end? Was it like that? Well, I mean, it eventually could have been, uh, <laughs> which is to say a, you know, kind of a concrete room um, underground surrounded by earth. Oh, yeah. No, I'm saying like the kind where it's like you dig a trench and put some wood poles oh, and earth no, no, over no. it. Okay. No, this is part of um, my basement. Like my dad had a, a workshop, and on the interior wall of the workshop, he knocked down the cinder block wall, and we just started digging. 
Oh, wow. Which wow, I'm sure was serious. super safe to the foundation of the house. Sure, right. <laughs> he's like, oh, it's probably not load-bearing. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, there was definitely a point in time, especially during the height of the Cold War, where it was like, this is, this is we're really in danger here. The world was just kind of walking around, just twitching and shaking at the idea of this. And part of the problem was not just the idea that um, a bomb was going to go off and just blow cities apart because apparently there was this um, one of the the nuclear deterrent theories, the game theories that that people kind of operated under um, said, no, you know what? If we ever engage in a nuclear war, um, we're we're just going to be attacking military installations side to side. And so we don't really have to worry about that for people in New York or D.C. or, you know, Atlanta, wherever, any of the major metropolitan cities. We don't have to worry about those cities getting leveled. But there's going to be a huge problem for the people living there because there's such a thing as radioactive fallout. It's right. not just the bomb that gets you. It's the fallout afterward. Yeah, I mean, if you're t- talking about a nuclear bomb, a nuclear warhead— uh, it depends on what kind. Um, you know, back then it was it was different than it is now. But mm-hmm. let's say a one megaton H bomb back in the day would completely wipe out everything within about two miles from where it hit. Yeah, and and I know I said we weren't going to fearmonger Chuck, but I found out that there is a bomb in the U.S. arsenal called the B eighty three, which is one point two megatons, and it can be carried around very easily by the B two bomber. Okay. So those exist. <laughs> Uh, so two miles, everything is gone, um, and this is from the blast. Uh, and a person, if you're like five miles away from that bomb site, you're mm-hmm. going to get hit with third degree burns. Yeah, just from that blast. Yeah, you're going to be hating life. Um, so the blast is going to be bad enough. And and again, yeah, just for from for people miles away, could be burned to death, um, incinerated, vaporized, it, just all sorts of terrible stuff. But if you're living outside of that blast zone, you got problems in uh, the radioactivity that's going to to be generated by it. Because when those bombs explode, they release a lot of radioactive particles of different varieties, and those things go up in the air. And they get kind of carried around and stirred up in the atmosphere. But a lot of them are heavy enough that they come back down in basically around the area, in a larger area around the the bomb's epicenter. Yeah, and we should probably just go over some of these uh, different types of radiation. Uh, Some of it you might recognize from various (laughs) Incredible Hulk comic books. (laughs) Right. But you've got your alpha particles, your beta particles – You've got gamma rays. You've got that, neutrons. The gamma rays is what got Hulk, right? I think so, right? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Because gamma rays are green and Hulk was green. <laughs> that's right. I think that's it. And he had those sweet, sweet purple pants that somehow still fit. <laughs> For sure. Uh, so the alpha and beta particles, they are not great, but they are easily stopped is probably the best way to say it. Yeah. So the here's the thing. Like, every, everything I tried to read about this was, like, they, they would go to great lengths to be like, well, this one isn't, isn't, like, that much of a problem. This one's way worse. And then finally they'd throw up their hands and be like, actually, all of this is just going to be one big giant cluster. Right. Because depending on the different type of radioactive particle, um, the, the, there's different situations where they're way worse than the other one. Like, a gamma ray is really bad because it can go clear through several inches of lead right into you on the other side of the lead through your body and then everything it comes in contact with, say all of your cells and tissues and bones and all that stuff, it really screws them up genetically and you can develop cancer and radiation sickness and all that. That's pretty bad. 
But then you've got alpha particles where they can be stopped by a piece of paper. They can't even make it through your skin. But they could get all over, like, crops in the water, and we drink them and eat them, and then they cause all sorts of of problems inside of you, too. So there's really no good radioactive particle as far as a fallout from a nuclear bomb is concerned. Yeah, not at all. So don't, you know, if you read up on this stuff and it said, oh, a piece of paper or a little bit of plastic can (laughs) stop— Beta particles and alpha particles, just think about the air you're breathing, the water you're drinking, the the maze you're growing. Sure. If you want to get traditional. It's all very dangerous. Yeah, don't just be like, oh, let's make a paper suit out of newspapers and maybe a little paper <laughs> tricornered hat out of newspapers. I'll be fine. But like you said, when this bomb hits, that mushroom cloud goes up. Everything's all mixed together. And as the wind blows... These little, uh, I think John Fuller, our old pal, wrote this one a long yeah. time ago, right? Yeah. For How Stuff Works. But old he John said, Fuller. He said there are lots of little, they act like little tiny missiles, basically, that are just going off all over the place. Yeah. That was the neutrons, right? Uh, I th- yeah, I think the neutrons specific, he called the missiles, but they kind of all are. Yeah, they are. They're, they're super high energy. And uh, gamma rays, um, like I said, they, they can pass right through you. Neutrons are a problem in the relative immediate blast area because they're very heavy. So they don't go nearly as far as, say, like gamma rays or X-rays or alpha particles or beta particles. But they, they all do damage in their own unique special snowflake way. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, this stuff is being carried around by um, the wind, but the actual particles that you're seeing is is actually Earth that is now enriched with this stuff that is poofed up from that crater where right. Earth Earth used to be, I guess. Right, and so knowing all this, like this was this is like why people started to be like, oh, okay, maybe we should start building fallout shelters to to live in or inhabit for you know the immediate period after this this nuclear attack. Um, to give us a chance to survive and hopefully, you know, make it a few weeks and then things will have died down. Everybody will have forgotten about the whole nuclear holocaust. <laughs> yeah. And we can come back out and restart civilization. That was the, really, honestly, if you get down to it, um, the the thinking behind fallout shelters in, in the United States in the 60s and late 50s. All right, should we take a break there and then talk about these things? I think so. Some more? Yeah. All right, we'll be right back, everyone. So, Chuck, I think um, since we've got one act under our belt, we need to start the second act by telling everybody they can pre-order our book. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I took some vitamins, you know. I've been taking vitamins as much as I can. Oh, yeah? And I've got this multivitamin, you know, like the worst a vitamin can taste. I've got that horrible vitamin taste just stuck in the back of my throat because it it got stuck there for a half of a millisecond before it washed down. And it's just left this terrible taste of uh, a vitamin coating back there. It's driving me batty. How uh, How is your health with the vitamins? Can you tell a difference? No, none. How's your pee? How's your urine? It's bright yellow, which yeah. makes me just feel like such a chump, especially <laughs> after our, our vitamin supplement episode. Oh, right. Didn't we say like we pee most of it out? Yeah. 
There's good ones for sure, and I like to think I'm taking good ones, but I just know that there's no telling right now. You're like, I'm using injectables now. (laughs) Pretty much (laughs) snortable (laughs) vitamins. So fallout shelters, uh, it's funny here, and and I'm glad John put it this way because it really makes a lot of sense. If you think about an SPF for sunscreen, Mm -hmm. it's the same exact way with a fallout shelter. You have a PF, a protection factor, Mm -hmm. and that is just very simply a representative of – um, being in a fallout shelter or just being out in the open. Right. And FEMA put out a pamphlet called Standards for Fallout Shelters, and they said you need a PF of 40. At if, least. Yeah, if you want to, you know. And that, that puts you down to about 2.5% of uh, the radiation, which I heard that number, and I thought that was too much. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think um, what you're really shooting for is something like 300 that kind of thing. Um, that, and they're saying like a minimum of 40 or else just you might as well just go lay out in the in the radioactivity <laughs> right. for all the protection you're going to get. Another way to look at that PF number is that it's the denominator and the fraction of the radioactive exposure that you get compared to being outside of the shelter. So a PF of 40 would mean that you get 1 40th. I'm more of a fraction guy than a, a, a decimal dude. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Uh-huh. How about you? You you like decimals or fractions more? I don't like either one, but I think for our next live show in 2022, mm-hmm. you should wear a shirt that says Fraction Guy, and I'll have one that says Decimal Dude. <laughs> okay. And that'll just be our new tour outfit. Fair enough. And you can Maybe. have yours printed on a, a button-down shirt, of course. Okay. That's, yeah. Because nothing looks better than good silk screening on a button-down <laughs> Oxford. Maybe by the time we go on tour again, this horrible vitamin taste will be out of my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe so. Mm. So with fallout shelters, there's a couple of kinds, um, if you're going back to the 1960s, that people were talking about. And that is the public one and then the private one that you just build at your house like we kind of didn't do. Um, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole, It's and and this is be right up your alley. You probably did this. Rabbit hole is pretty safe, I bet. Yeah, it depends on how deep, I guess. Yeah. But uh, if you start Googling 60s fallout shelters. Oh, and I did. Oh, boy. It's just a treasure trove of articles and pictures. Um, I saw one that these people in Woodland Hills, a suburb of L.A., bought, Mm -hmm. or part of greater Los Angeles, bought a house not too long ago, a few years ago, and they Mm -hmm. found a, did you see this one? No, I saw some in Milwaukee. This Oh, well, I saw that Milwaukee article, too. That was great. <laughs> but they found a 15-foot-down, under-the-earth fallout shelter wow. that was fully stocked. like It was like a time capsule from 1961. And Brendan Fraser and Christopher Walken were living in it. <laughs> I can't remember who the mom was. Do you remember? Oh, I didn't see that. Oh, you didn't? No. It was a cute movie. Yeah. Is that yeah, was- Encino Man? No, no, no. Oh. <laughs> this was Blast from the Past. Oh, okay. And Zeno Man was ever. great, too, because the weasel's in it. Oh, was he? Yeah, Polly Shore. Yeah, I know who that is. I just didn't... Uh... Polly Shore, Sean Austin, and Brendan Fraser. Sean Astin. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> that guy's rich enough. He doesn't care what I say. So I was looking at all these 1961 period products and just, like, getting tingly feelings in my body because mm-hmm. they were perfectly preserved for the most part, like faded and stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was a can, like a coffee can, but it said multi-purpose food, <laughs> meals for millions. Uh-huh. And so I was like, I got to find out what this is. And it turns out that Meals for Millions was a nonprofit from way back then that is now 
Um, what's Heifer it called International. Now? No, now it's 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 transformed into another name these days. Uh, I think Freedom from Hunger is the new name. Okay. But these two guys, Clifford Clinton and Dr. Henry Borsuk, took on this task of uh, – Borsuk was a, a biochemist at Caltech. Mm-hmm. And they took on this um, project of trying to find the best food to feed, like the cheapest, absolute, most bare-bones thing you could put in a package to feed the hungry. Right. And that's what they came up with uh, was this stuff in a can. And it is uh, – 68% defatted soy grits <laughs> plus dehydrated potatoes, cabbage, tomatoes, onions, leeks, parsley, and spices fortified with vitamins and minerals. And it That's, all right. comes in a can and you boil it up and eat it. And it was something like two cents per serving. Wow. And it was a really ingenious idea, but this became, I think, kind of a popular thing for fallout shelters because you could just stock cans and cans of this, like the most bare bones caloric uh, sort of healthy thing you could get. Meals for millions. That's pretty great. I, I did not expect it to actually be as healthy as what you just list, listed off. Yeah, I, I would love to taste some of it. Well, uh, multi-purpose travel food. the Woodland Hills. <laughs> I know. But just call it food. What do you mean multi-purpose food? Is I it don't like know. a pomade as well or Maybe. something? Maybe. A One sealant. Of the, a food that I ran across um, that was pretty popular, especially among government-funded uh, fallout shelters, was this kind of like wheat cracker mm-hmm. that was made from bulgur wheat. And apparently they were inspired by some crackers that were found in Egyptian tombs that were still edible after a couple thousand years. So they're like, oh, that'd be perfect for fallout shelters. So they kind of recreated those. Tasteless, edible? Yeah, multi-purpose apparently. You could shave with them too. <laughs> you might good. That, that <laughs> Milwaukee article was pretty cool though. Um, yeah. I think that it said that um, at the time there were like 3,000-plus personal shelters in the city of Milwaukee alone. Yeah, the thing is, is like that's that's probably a pretty good number. The thing is there's no official numbers for the, the fallout shelters that were built around the, the, the Cold War because there were a lot of public or private ones, but there's also public ones too. So let's keep talking about the private ones first. Because if we're going to follow the historical timeline, which I'm in favor of, um, around, I think, the late 1950s, I think it was 1957, in, in the Eisenhower administration, there was a report that's now called the Gaither Report. And it basically said... Um, here's everything we figured out about a nuclear war. Um, the cities are toast. Mm-hmm. People are going to die en masse. Uh, we have no place to put them for them to shelter in. And everybody's in a lot of trouble if there is a nuclear war. So really, the best thing we need to focus on is to prevent a nuclear war from happening. Well, that leaked out. And people said, well, what are we going to do? And this is when the government was like, I don't know. Why don't you build some some shelters and leave us alone? And so people started doing that, and it became like a huge craze. And so um, shelters in in places like that home in Woodland Hills or that one in Milwaukee um, that are still around today in some cases, that became like a big deal, like um, – uh, like adding like a really nice swimming pool or adding like a, 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 a rec room or something like mm-hmm. that. People turned to fallout shelters and they started building them like crazy. Yeah, and, and from that Milwaukee, I think it was in Milwaukee was the name of the uh, website. Mm-hmm. But from what they said was they were being marketed um, as sort of multi-purpose rec rooms 
that in case the the S goes down, it's conveniently um, you know lined with concrete, right? And you could just sort of easily convert it. And I guess you would have some stuff stashed there in either a closet or in, in uh, bins or something. And when you're not using it, you know, when there's no nuclear disaster, you're just using it as sort of a playroom or something. Yeah, there was some decorators show in Chicago in the late 50s, I think, and they build this thing as the living or the family room of tomorrow. Yeah. Where it was exactly what you described. It was like a, a normal functioning family room, but it just happened to be in a basement in like foot thick concrete uh, encased under the dirt. Yeah, I remember seeing when I was a kid, my brother and I did lots of sort of, uh, I mean, I guess it wasn't urban exploring, but... Trespassing? Suburban exploring. <laughs> sure, okay. And I, th- I remember a couple of distinct times that we saw uh, vent pipes just coming out of the earth in the forest, and we never saw any uh, entryway or anything like that, but that had to be some sort of fallout shelter, I think. Yeah, probably. I mean, probably. They, were, they were near homes, but not like in the yard. We'd come across a couple of them in our various uh, expeditions. Okay. Like, you know, just a clearly a vent pipe just coming out of the woodland forest oh, gotcha, floor. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm sure that's exactly what it was. I hope. <laughs> yeah, well, we didn't dig around. If not, have you ever seen that Hugh Jackman movie where, like, his wife is kidnapped? Prisoners? And, yeah, man, that was really good. Yeah. I mean, really good. Yeah, great movie. So, um... That's, uh, what's-his-face that's doing the new Dune movie, Denis Villeneuve. Oh, well, there you go. That's why it was so good. Yeah, he's he's a master. Um, I'm sorry, Chuck. I just, I can't not correct you. His name is Dennis. Dennis <laughs> Villeneuve. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, I mispronounced it. <laughs> so, um, I was kidding. Anyway, um, there was the private fallout shelter trend that just blew up and and became a thing. And then um, in 1961, President Kennedy sent a letter out. I'm surely it went out to more than just this, but if you were a Life magazine subscriber, which was pretty substantial back in 1961, um, in the September 15th edition, you got a letter from President Kennedy basically saying like, hey, you know, this whole possibility of nuclear war thing, well, we've decided we're going to do something about it, we the government, and we're going to start what's called the National Fallout Shelter Survey. And this, with the survey, basically what we're going to do is send out government officials, and they're going to look at buildings all around the country and identify sites that have the potential of serving as a fallout shelter. And everyone says, well, that's great. So, like, a fallout shelter, so if, like, a nuclear bomb goes off over our city, we're going to be saved. He's like, no, yeah. <laughs> don't be ridiculous. <laughs> that would cost a lot of money. No, this is going to protect you if, um, if, if from radioactive fallout. You'll have to survive the blast, uh, but this will, this will hopefully protect you from the fallout afterward. Yeah, and, you know, we kind of laugh about that, but, I mean, there's no way they could have built enough, sh- like, adequate shelters to protect all Americans from the blast. No, I mean, there was a lot of Americans. Apparently, they did look at it at first, and they it could was going to be like <laughs> $200 billion in, in uh, 1961 yeah, dollars. That's another cute number, actually. They were like, oh, no, that's we can't do that. We don't have that kind of money. So it was like you said, I think 100 and, $190 million is what they ended up spending on it, which to me seems like a lot of money to, to send out some people to, to look at buildings and decide what was a fallout shelter and what wasn't. Yeah, you know, what's really funny is when you look at what people did around the world, what countries did around the world, and how it so jibes with 
how those countries are still today. Mm-hmm. Um, so the U.S. did what we did. Uh, the Soviets said that they built uh, a big extensive system and they had an advanced cooling system and all these filters protecting against everything mm-hmm. and provisions, food and water forever. And, uh, you know, this is this is the press release they put out, basically. Who knows right. what really happened? Yeah, because I found that on, like, RussiaSoGreat.com or yeah. whatever. <laughs> I, I, and it, I mean, it was, it was like an urban exploration of, like, an abandoned shelter. But, you know, was this just, like, the biggest one? How many were like that? Right. But supposedly, the Soviets boasted of a, a system that could protect most, most of their um, citizens from the blast. All right. So that makes sense. Um, Sweden built uh, 65,000, which covered about 70% of the population. TS for the other 30%. Switzerland built enough shelters for everybody. Okay. God bless them. Uh, the UK said, you know what? We're going to build enough for our military, our government, and the royal family. <laughs> yeah. Chin up, everyone else. And then Australia said, eh, we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll take a pass. We're not going to build any because no one's going to mess with us down here. Yeah. They're like, everybody's right on the beach. Everyone knows we're fine if the rest of the world's gone up in flames. I think they're probably right. I mean, they were, they were and especially back then, enough off the map uh, – or off the path of of the threat that mm-hmm. they didn't even need to sweat it. Yeah. They're like, "Hey, what's all the all the ruckus up there?" Yeah. So, um, but the so the US said, "Okay, we've got to do something. Let's at least build these fallout shelters that are going to protect people from radioactivity." Um, and so they started building these um, why well, I, I shouldn't say building. They started going on to private property or public buildings and saying, "Hey, you got a really nice basement here. Yeah. Um, can you take down the human skins?" Clean it up a little bit. We're going to put some bulgur wheat biscuits in here. We're going to put in some uh, multi-purpose food. Don't ask. Uh-huh. And uh, we're going to turn this place into a fallout shelter. And on their way out, they would slap a sign, a very iconic sign, which yeah. is a black circle with three inverted triangles all pointing toward the center um, that designated a fallout shelter. And they did this in yellow in the event um, of a like a blackout during a nuclear war or something so that you could easily see it. Yeah, pretty cool. The company 3M made these for about a penny each, and they made about 400,000 of these signs. Mm-hmm. And they would stock these things with, um, you know, like medical first aid kits, some water drums, yeah, those crackers that you talked about uh, that if you add water could probably double up as like cement patch. Yeah, I guess, but I think people would wrestle you to the ground if you tried to use the water for anything but drinking after, you know, in the event of this. Sure. I mean, that's one thing we didn't mention. If you go to build your own fallout shelter, um, you know, you should have some food, but water obviously is far more important. We've talked about that a lot, mm-hmm. about how long the human body can go without food and water. Yep. Got to have a lot of water. Um, I think I would stock it up with some of that Mike's Mighty Good Ramen. <laughs> sure. Of <laughs> course. Which, by so, the way, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that they actually sent us a coupon code for Stuff You Should Know listeners. Oh, yeah. This this is not an ad, but they uh, we, we talk about that ramen so much. They said, you know what? Tell everyone Stuff You Should Know 20. We'll get them 20% off uh, ramen if they want to order some. Very nice. Do you write, write the number 20 or, or write out T-W-E-N-T-Y? The number 20 after Stuff You Should Know. So two zero. Yeah, and you could okay. stock up your own uh, fallout shelter. You can eat that stuff for lunch. Doesn't take up a lot of room, good Forever. calories. It's multi-purpose food. You got to use some water for it, though. Right. But I mean, hey. 
Or you could that's, collectively spit in it, I guess, and heat that up. That's grody. <laughs> you're going to get that water anyway, though, you know, because you're going to drink the juice. That's true. Uh, so back to the public shelters. They had these pretty well stocked. They said uh, there was an actual booklet in there that said if you want a toilet, <laughs> cut, cut a seat out of a chair and put a bucket right. under it, and there's your toilet. And so when that pamphlet came out in particular, the American citizenry said, like, for real, this is what our tax dollars are doing. This is what we're getting from our government. Cut a cut a hole in the seat of a chair and put a bucket under there. That's your advice for the nuclear uh, war that you're half responsible for having us live under the threat of, right? Yeah. They said, we're not socialists. You take care yeah. of yourself. Yeah. So the thing is, is, like, people would— People would, right? People would um, read newspapers, or people would um, like watch the news, or whatever, and they would be getting one channel of information that was saying, like, yeah, here's what this, you know, what a one megaton bomb could possibly do to you, or if this blew up over New York City, this is what would happen. And people would say, well, what's the point of having these fallout shelters? Because if a bomb goes off over New York City, all of those fallout shelters are going to be totally obliterated. There's no point for them. Um, And the government in doing something like trying to at least lift some finger and make people feel less anxious actually had the opposite effect because it drew a lot of attention and focus to the need for fallout shelters while at the same time reinforcing the idea that these fallout shelters weren't going to be worth anything for anybody, unless maybe you lived in Topeka or somewhere where there there wasn't what's known as a key target, so that you might actually survive in a fallout shelter that was well-stocked and uh, had few enough people. It could work, but for most Americans, especially ones in major cities, you're going to be in bad shape. And, and the fallout shelter program uh, really kind of pointed that out. All right. Should we take a break? I think so. All right. We'll take our last break, and we'll be back right after this. So before we broke, you said something about unless you live in Topeka, uh, doesn't Kansas have silos or no? Military yeah, as I was saying silos? it, I was like, <laughs> <Okay>. shh. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you said something. At least they'll save us the emails. Okay, because that, you know, we, we did mention, but, you know, we talked about game theory earlier mm-hmm. about how the reasoning was, no, you don't need to worry if you're in a big city because there aren't military bases there. Right. But, you know, that it sort of goes – the way of um, that war goes once anything goes wrong. So if one um, bomb from the opposition, from the enemy, goes to somewhere it isn't supposed to go, Uh then all bets are off, basically. Yeah. And then it's just bomb away. Also, I want to give a shout-out to uh, Robert Clara from History.com, who wrote, Nuclear fallout shelters were never going to work, who uh, wrote a pretty great article about how this whole program was kind of doomed from the start. Kind of says it, was it all. Ill-conceived, you know. But not only was it ill-conceived, they were also, like, poorly stocked. Some of these things that were designated fallout shelters never got their supplies. Um, water drums were leaking. And then um, others worked really well, so well, in fact, that there's one they found at the Oyster Adams Bilingual School in D.C., which is a school still functioning today, part of D.C. public schools. But there is a fallout shelter that's like a um, 
a time capsule, basically, that has all of the original provisions in it, just frozen in time still. Wow. Yeah, it's really like that neat. house in California. Yeah, basically. Um, except this was one of the the, the designated right. public fallout shelters, but below a school. Yeah, I think, didn't they try to build them to house at least 50 people? Mm-hmm. And I think they had, they recommended for the personal ones that they be at least six and a half feet tall. Yeah. And that was one of the things that sort of um, would have been the toughest, I think, about fallout shelters. There's so many of them were very had very low ceilings. Right. Obviously there's no windows. I mean it's bunker life is is tough going. And they recommended two weeks and which is nuts to me. Like uh, there's no way I'm poking my head out after two weeks just to see if it's how how things are going up there. Right. And I mean like there was some logic and reasoning to that two weeks and that there's a, that you would have exceeded the half life of a lot of the radionuclides that are yeah, um not that enough are for created. <laughs> but yeah, there's plenty that would still be around. Yes, it was it was never never going to work like Robert Clara put it. No, and and I think that was sort of the idea of what you're talking about with the public being so disheartened and feeling helpless about our civil defense was Yeah. Um, like this is the general public and they didn't think it seemed like a good plan. But it, it makes me wonder, though, is that a good thing? Like it sucks to have that kind of mental anxiety that we all collectively had during the Cold War, especially at the height of this stuff, like in the 60s. Yeah. But I think it might have actually been good because then the public was aware of just how dangerous things were and would prevent a kind of cavalier attitude toward nuclear war because they maybe. knew what was at stake and what was at stake were their very lives. Maybe. I mean, and maybe that's a bottom-up sort of like a groundswell of public mm-hmm. thought mm-hmm. ekes its way up into the into government. And, you know, I mean, I guess we'll never know how close— we ever got. I mean, I don't think we've ever done one on the nuclear, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Have we not? I don't think specifically, but, you know, we've been on the brink uh, in, a, in a way that history has recognized. But I'm curious how close it's been in times that we never even knew about, you know. There's one guy who celebrated uh, every year. I can't remember what the day is, but it's basically like Save the World Day where this one um, Soviet – I guess a missile commander basically had a few minutes, was being told by his computers and all of his underlings that the U.S. had launched a massive strike and that, you know, it was up to him to to call and order this counterstrike or call the people who would order the counterstrike. And he sweated it out. He said that there, he just didn't believe that the Americans would have uh, launched an unprovoked all-out nuclear strike like he was being shown. And he stayed his hand and literally saved the world from a nuclear war, like wow. by, single-handedly. And the scary thing is, Chuck, is that has happened more than once. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. It's funny that, like, I th- we're basically the last generation that grew up with any knowledge of the threat of nuclear war like this. Yeah. Like, we sort of experienced the tail end of the Cold War. Perfect generation. Yeah, but it's it's hard to um and the um the Friendly Fire podcast which is one of my favorites the war movie podcast that mm-hmm. uh our buddies uh, Ben Harrison and Adam Pranica and John Roderick do. Mm-hmm. They're younger. Roderick's, you know, a few years older than me. Way old. Uh, so way older than you. But yeah. um John kind of drives this point home a lot about like it's really hard to put into words what that does to a a, a set of generations when we're all sort of living under this 
you know, very real threat <laughs> that we could all die the worst possible death. And, yeah. you know, not like, oh, you kids have got it made or anything like that, but it's it's a different sort of mindset, you know? Yeah. I mean, it definitely is, and it definitely affects you from, from every stage of your life, you know? I mean, it went away by the time we were in college, but, you know, I remember my early years, obviously, we were digging a fallout shelter. It was... It was a big threat, and sure. movies and TV reinforce that every day. Yep. So um, if you wanted to build a fallout shelter, we have to say there was um, a time in addition to um, designating fallout shelters. By the way, if you find one of those old fallout shelter signs, hang on to it. You can pretty much take it, and unless there's a, a close-watching groundskeeper Willie type who takes care of that building— nobody's probably going to notice it's gone. Yeah. And the U.S. government has no idea how many are out there because they never kept track of the fallout shelters. There was no registry or anything. Yeah, I mean, they shut, <clears throat> started shutting these down in the early 70s officially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Started giving away the food, um, sent some of it to organizations in Africa mm-hmm. and Bangladesh. And then those signs started, I think, in the mid-70s, started pulling those signs out. And I think finally, just three years ago in 2017, they uh, they said that they said that they got the last of the signs out of New York City, right? Which and I don't think we mentioned it's hysterical that they built these fallout shelters in Manhattan and Brooklyn, right? As if that would you know that would lead to good be things, spared, yeah, right, or exactly. be spared, right? So um, so if you if you if you did want to make a fallout shelter, there's um, there was a, a pamphlet put out by Oak Ridge National Laboratory where they basically the hired boys. <laughs> yeah, they uh, they had a sideline in uh-huh. studying nuclear disaster <laughs> wow. survival. Um, what like you couldn't tell with their beard, you know? Right. But um, the this pamphlet basically was the result of Oak Ridge hiring a bunch of families, regular old American families, and saying um, a nuclear war is happening right now. Go build a fallout shelter. Here's your instructions, and then seeing how easy it could be done, and then adjusting the instructions and so on and so forth until they finally got to this pamphlet. And the pamphlet basically came up with this really good fallout shelter where you just basically dug a trench in in the ground Mm -hmm. that was several feet deep, covered it with wood poles, covered the wood poles with something like cloth, the old bed sheet, something like that, put dirt on it, put shower curtains, something waterproof, and then put more dirt on that. And they actually figured out that this particular fallout shelter had like a, 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 a protection factor of like 300. Really? Yeah. That it, and it would also survive a blast that most houses would not survive. Wow! Because you're you're just basically hunkered down in the earth, and uh, it would it would work for you if you wanted to. And they said that um, it can be done. They used the example that two non-athletic college-age girls did it in 36 <laughs> hours. That was that was how they were selling it. We got a couple of girl couch potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Look at them. Wow. Yeah. I would so, I, when I was reading about that, I was. I figured you'd get maybe a 20 out of that. A 20? What do you mean? For PF. No, a 1 300th. Wow. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, thank you, Oak Ridge boys. Giddy up, Oom Papa. And since Chuck said that, everybody, it's time for listener mail. All right, I'm going to call this uh, a series of apologies to Australia. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I know what this is about. So before the, we get into the email, um, I, I do think we should address this, that we've had some ads running in Australia only mm-hmm. that have been no good. 
Uh, and these aren't ads that we knew about. These aren't ads that we read. Um, we have a, a separate uh, company in Australia that's doing that for us. And mm-hmm. everything is under review now, right now because um, we don't want these ads out there. So, Yeah, it's a, it's a new relationship and we're kind of figuring each other out. That's right. Um, but we do want to say that uh, none of these ads were our decision. Um, if you're out there and your interest has peaked and you're like, oh my gosh, what are they talking about? I'll never know. They were... You know, there were ads for, like, mining companies and stuff like that, among other things. Not super SYSK-type stuff. No, that we're that's right. And, and we wanted to address it head-on. Uh, but also, we wanted to address our own uh, foibles in the Billabongs uh, terminology that we were talking about in the Wetlands this episode. Just, just shameful, man. It is. Uh, and this is something we should know, even though we are not Australians. But we use the term Aborigines very sort of willy-nilly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a this um, is an email from Tanita. She said, uh, in the episode in Wetlands, you used a number of terms talking about billabongs uh, that were not correct terminology. The term Aborigines is considered outdated and defensive uh, as it groups all indigenous groups into one term and its connotations of colonial Australia. Uh, some of the uh, current terms and correct terms for traditional owners of Australia uh, include Aboriginal people, Indigenous, First Nations people, and this is something that you know we should, just should have known. So, yeah. Plus, I mean, it applies to to more than just um, the, the native people of Australia too. You know, so of course. Yeah, and and we got a bunch of emails from people that said if you really want to do right by these people, you need to research the exact people that you're talking about, yeah. like the uh, Palawa people from Tasmania, uh, where she's from, or the Anaiwan people from the area around uh, Armadale, where she lives now. Mm-hmm. And we didn't do that. And she said there were 250 different languages in Australia before invasion. Only 120 are now spoken. Uh, Billabong, in fact, comes from the uh, Wiradjuri language from mm-hmm. central New South Wales and is now a common Australian English term. And that is from Tanita and many others. Thank you so much for taking it easy on us, Tanita. That was very nice. Super Australian of you as well. Just uh, laid back and nice and not at all like um, chest pokey. So we appreciate that. That's right. And, you know, if you're in the United States and you're not quite sure what even this means, it'd basically be like just saying Africa as a lump all term for like any tribe in Africa and the culture and the language that is very specific to that region. Right. And we're not hip to that. No. So thanks again. Who was that? Tanita. Yeah. Okay. Thanks again, Tanita. Thanks again, Australia, for uh, taking such good care of us over there. We appreciate you guys. And thanks to everybody who listens to Stuff You Should Know. Uh, And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, no matter where you live in the world, no matter what language you speak, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.